0: Right, well, welcome one more time to Encounter a Church where you matter to us, you matter to God. We're kicking off a brand new series here at church called New Wine. More on that in just a moment, but this series is about change. It's about life change, it's about heart change, it's about identifying whatever area of, you, of your life where you believe God might be asking you to be better, to grow more, to change. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's something like a habit that God is asking you to drop, or maybe a habit that God is asking you to start. Maybe it's a personality flaw or a character flaw. It's just something about your life that God is asking you to change. Throughout this series, it's just going to be helpful for you to kind of think about that thing in mind. I'm not going to ask you to like write that down or share it or anything else like that. But just think about what that thing is, and maybe talk about that with the person that you came here with on the drive home. Uh, but but think about this life that God is calling out inside of you. For me, I kind of know what it is because many of you have told me what it is in the past, in the most loving kind of church way. And not just you guys, but other people too outside the church. I kind of hear it fairly often when people sit me down and say, Dirk, I think you should consider, it's a very charitable way of putting it, whether or not you're the kind of person that starts things a lot of the time and maybe doesn't follow through on them all the time as much. And I do that like good like pastor thing where I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm gonna think and pray. No, no, I don't do that at all. I say, I don't do that. You do that. That's your fault. That's not my fault. That's your thing. That's not my thing. And then the response comes and says, fair, fair, fair. I just want to ask, how's that marathon training coming along? And it's like, well, wait a second. That was before I knew how awful running was. <laughs> right? Or they asked, like, how's the fish tank, aquarium, deal, saltwater tanks? You know, that was, uh, that was a passion of yours. And I'm like, that was a solid three-month hobby that, uh, it was, while short-lived, it was no less passionate. I still have one fish in my five-year-old's room that I didn't manage to kill yet. It's been going for a year. Pray for that guy's soul. But... Uh, <laughs> And if you get really real, you talk to my wife and ask her about her experience with this, and she might bring up uh, a commitment that I made uh, when we were first married, not like a vow, okay, I hold those, okay, don't worry about that, but, but like commitment that I made when we were first starting off, and I told her, I said, honey, whether the apartment needs it or not, I'm going to vacuum every week, <laughs> right? And I called it, because it's slogans, right? I I love a good slogan, a little Sunday takeaway, something like that. And I go, we can call this Vacuum Day Friday. And every Friday, again, whether it needs it or not, I'm going to vacuum. And she, uh, if you talk to her now, she'd say, yeah, Dirk totally came through on that about eight times in 12 years. (laughs) Shooting for a ninth this Friday, checkmate. No, just, oh my goodness, that was a mistake. Um. (laughs) But I can identify that, right, and see that the part of my life that I'm like, man, I think that if God was probably going to ask me to change somehow, it would be to maybe make fewer commitments that I probably know in the back of my mind I'm not going to follow through on. Maybe start a few less things. That's mine. What's yours? Like, what's your area? What's the thing that God might be calling out of a change and you want to change? You just don't know how. Yeah, like some of you, you got temper that goes from zero to DEFCON 5, just like that. And it just goes off and flies off a rail. And you know when it's happening. You have this out-of-body experience and you watch it all unfolds. You know what the trigger things are. You know all of this, but it just, it hasn't happened. You haven't like tamed this thing yet. And you're going, if I'm going to change a part of my life that God wants me to change, it might be that. Or or maybe it's something like I have this, this cycle to my life that I don't love, but at the same time I can't get rid of whether it's taking on and acquiring more and more stuff or more and more commitments like i load up my home and my calendar with so much so many things that that it overloads me. I get stressed out, and it's just like throwing it all out. Like like everything is gone. If it's not nailed, if it's not nailed down, or it's not one of my kids, like it's gone out of my house, out of my calendar. There's no more time for it. And I just I want to find that middle, and, and I want to know what it means not only to be happy, but but on a deeper sense, content. Or maybe it's the part of your life, and you're going. I I want so badly to be the kind of person that when somebody says something to me, I want to sit on it at least for five seconds before like immediately offering my knee-jerk reaction. I want to be the the kind of patient or gracious, compassionate listener, listener that Jesus would ask me to be. And I just know in the moment this isn't the response, but I just can't help it. It flies out of me. I know the areas that I'm supposed to grow in. I know the areas that I'm supposed to chip away at. I know the areas that don't belong and should belong. I just can't do it. I want to know how. That's what this series is about, new wine. It's, it's a funny kind of metaphor for the series um, because some of you maybe who are, um, who are wine aficionados and who really ap- appreciate a good expensive bottle of wine, call me anytime, by the way. Just FYI, throwing that out there. Uh, <laughs> But some of you know that like the best wine is that way because it's not new, because it's old, because it's aged, because it's been around in a cellar for several decades. It makes it so good. Well, in in the Bible, when when God talks about new wine, he uses it as a metaphor, as a stand-in for new life, for change. Uh, You see, the thing that they appreciated in the Bible about new wine isn't just how it tasted, but what it meant. Uh, They would go through a cycle of feast for most of the year and then a short little while, sorry, famine for most of the year and then a short little while of feast and then back to famine for the rest of the year. And so there was this brief moment in the season when the harvest would come in and celebration would ensue. This time of the year when they'd look over at the vines, the grapevines, and the grapes would, would, would weigh heavy on the vines and they knew it's just about here. And then together when the harvest would come in, not just grapes for wine, but also wheat for bread, all the, everything. And, and they'd crush the grapes and, and they'd press on them. And as a community together, the celebration would happen. And so when the Bible, when God in the Bible talks about new wine, he talks about not only new wine, he talks about a new harvest, a new season, a new Beginning. And some of you who are fed up with, the, with the needing change in your life, you're desperately craving, like, I want that. I need that fresh start, new beginning. And this is how it happens. Next week, we're going to take a look at how God gifts us the new wine, new beginning. That comes from some of the most adversity, struggles, trials that we experience. Today, we're learning about new wine, fresh start, new beginning from God looking at us and loving us and the change that makes inside of us. So I wanna do that this morning by telling you a story uh, from Luke chapter 19. If you wanna follow along in a paper Bible, we've got those underneath the chairs. We give those away every single week. We love giving them away. If you don't have a Bible, if you just like ours better, take it, our gift to you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 19 starts off this way, and we'll just read the first verse. It says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And I just like, want to highlight that Jesus is in Jericho, but that's not the final destination. Uh, the place where he's heading is Jerusalem, not Jericho. Luke has kind of given us these ominous clues that Jesus... When he gets to Jerusalem in like a week and a half from this story, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die. And he knows it. And that just kind of elevates the significance of everything that happens beforehand, I think. He's just passing through Jericho. This isn't the destination. It's just where he is right now, which I think makes it such a perfect verse for us today. Because there's so many people today, so many people listening and right now in the room or listening, watching online, who are just passing through. You're not where you want to be. You're not where you need to be. You're not where you will be someday, But you're here now, and God is at work. He's just about to do something in your life. He's just about to do something in the story. Verse 2, there's a man, a man who was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now those are two phrases that are put together, those two words that are put together that that probably didn't belong together all the time. I mean the name Zacchaeus and then the title of tax collector how you would become a tax collector is that you would kind of financially size up your closest friends and family members to see how much you believe that you could shake them down for, and then offer that uh, as, a, as, a, as a payment to the Roman occupying army. And you'd slip in a nice generous bribe along with that, and then that army would declare you as the tax collector of the region. I just want to like point out the kind of person that Zacchaeus was. That process, by the way, as a good Jewish guy, made him a traitor. Uh, He sold out his countrymen uh, in terms of financial gain, uh, selling out to the enemy, selling out to the Roman occupying army. How could you? But it was more than that because Israel today and also back then was not a geographically large nation by any means. I mean, you could fit Israel completely into West Michigan like it's that small. It had three uh, population bases, uh, Cappadocia, Jericho, where this story takes place, and then the capital, of course, Jerusalem. If you're just kind of thinking West Michigan terms, we're talking like Holland, Kalamazoo, and Grand Rapids. These are the three significant population centers that were in Israel. Uh, West Michigan, along with Israel, are just as holy as one another. Jerusalem, just make sure you're paying attention. Okay, he's the chief tax collector of like Kalamazoo. Like this is a big job. He's in charge of collecting everything from this significant population base. He was a traitor, but he was also an extortionist, shaking people down. The Romans, they didn't care how you would collect the money as long as the check cleared on time every month. It didn't matter how you got the money. So, so there's some early accounts about how the tax collectors would go about setting up the booths because everybody would knew where, when they find out where you are, they'd make sure to avoid that spot and make sure to avoid you along with it to try to slip under the radar. And so tax collectors would set up a booth uh, on the road and like, charge, a, charge a tax for anybody slipping through. And they'd kind of set up random taxes. Like uh, sometimes they'd set up, uh, there's, a, there's an axle tax. You come through, you're moving some, uh, moving some cargo, maybe you're selling it in the next town over. Uh, you got some animals, you're pulling a cart, and it's like, oh, it's uh, two axles, that's uh, double the tax. And they're like, oh, man, axle tax? You've got to be kidding me. Like, what kind of, that's strange. All right, so the next day, I'm pulling my cargo through, and it's like, I'm going to beat this system, unload the whole cargo thing, the whole, like, uh, trolley deal, and just load up all the donkeys, and, like, let's going to go through on donkeys, no axles, no tax. The guy's like, oh, yeah, today we got a donkey tax. As a donkey tax, uh, you got four donkeys, you got four x the tax. It's like, come on, like donkey tax. Okay, I'm going to Amazon Prime this thing out of town so nobody ever sees it. And then I'm, uh, and I'm just going to walk on by. I don't have any cargo. I don't have anything to sell. It's just me all the way. I'm just walking through. And the tax collector there, uh, Zacchaeus, is gone. oh, it looks like uh, you're a pedestrian. You got a foot tax. Two feet, double the tax. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. But that's like more or less what it was like, how, how infuriating it would be to, to try to like, I don't, try to avoid this guy, try to pay the taxes, like do whatever. Point is, they could not stand to look at Zacchaeus, let alone be around him for any amount of time at all. That's how loath this guy was. The two words that I mentioned earlier are like, you don't see those next to each other very often. It's this, uh, the title of tax collector, one word in Greek, and then his name, Zacchaeus. Because it's a Hebrew name, so it's a good Jewish name, but unfortunately for him, it it, it means the word pure. And you're like, oh man, how many times I've heard he's a pure (laughs) something or other. No, it's got like this holy connotation, a pure and righteous, upstanding Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, who was wealthy and has it all together, who's probably got downlines of other tax collectors working for him. It's a bit ironic and tragic. I think that whenever he heard his name, he probably heard it as like Zacchaeus, with the sneering, mockery, disdain, maybe sarcasm it. But then everything changes. Uh, Verse 3. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. This is a a somewhat... um, is it somewhat unusual that this guy, a tax collector who climbs up into the sycamore or fig tree because he wants to see Jesus? It says that he had to do that if he wanted to see Jesus because he was short. Some of you who grew up in church or church school may have learned a song about this guy. Let's see if you remember it. It's Zacchaeus was a wee, a wee little man was he. You got it. Just a heads up. Do not call a man wee. Just a, especially not if he's in charge of your taxes, Right? We we shouldn't call him that just because he's vertically challenged. I don't want to make too much of this, um, this, like, height deal at all. We don't want to stoop that low. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, But... uh, and in fact, he might not have been uh, short at all. It might have been a reference to his uh, relative youth. Maybe he was a, a 20-something years old. He's younger than everybody else. And maybe that's kind of what it meant. Some biblical scholars are uh, debating that thing, and that's why they sort of box him out because it's an elder-driven society. And if you're older, you could kind of do that uh, to a guy like him. And so that's maybe why he scurries up in the tree to want to see Jesus. Like, whatever the reason, it doesn't matter. He's up in the tree. He wants to see Jesus that bad. Does it surprise you that a guy like Zacchaeus wants to see a guy like Jesus that badly? I mean, I mean some of you who have been around encounter, or maybe just been around church long enough, you know enough about Jesus to know that Jesus is exactly the kind of guy that wants to hang out with Zacchaeus. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus loves people like that. Um, does it surprise you at all that Zacchaeus wants to hang out with him? I mean, I just think that like a spiritual, religious leader, a rabbi like Jesus, Zacchaeus would want anything to do with a guy like that. I mean, Zacchaeus is a guy also who has it all together. He has everything. He has everything that he's ever wanted. He lives in a mansion up on the hill overlooking his, his garden. He's the kind of guy that like drives a Porsche or maybe a Porsche. I don't really know. I don't drive one. I don't know how you say it. He's the guy that like has the NFL red zone ticket deal with like all of the games going and a big leather chair with a 70-inch OLED flat screen TV. Like he's got it all. Why would he want to look at a guy, to find a guy, to see a guy like Jesus? There's an expression I've heard that says, don't spend your whole life trying to climb the top, to the top of a ladder only in the the end to realize that the ladder was leaning against the wrong building. There's a little bit of that going on, I think, with Zacchaeus. Even though he has everything at his disposal, there's also this sense in which I've pursued it all and I've been wildly successful. And the only problem was I was successful at the wrong things. And so some of you might be coming here and might be listening to this. And the outside, like Zacchaeus, everything is together. You've got it all perfect. You've got so many friends. You've got great relationships. But it's only at the end of the day when you realize just by yourself, taking an honest stock and honest inventory, that most of those relationships are shallow and vapid at best. And you're well loved by everybody. But it's away from the party It's when you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't like the person that's staring back at you. And it's in those moments that you're going, I've pursued the wrong thing. If I'm successful, I'll never make it because the ladder is against the wrong building in the first place. Maybe you're tired and you need a change. Zacchaeus is definitely tired and needs a change. He's climbing up into the tree. He's trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And then Jesus spots him. Verse five, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. He uses his name, Zacchaeus. I must stay at your house today. Now when he says, stay at your house, it's it's like I must tabernacle, I must tent, I must lodge overnight at your house. I am going to be your guest today. And it's somewhat surprising to remember, he's passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. This isn't the destination. It's surprising on one hand that he he pauses long enough to to stay overnight. It's uh, surprising on another level that he decides to stay at the godfather of the Corleone families that night. But nevertheless, he says, I'm staying at your place tonight. You're hosting me. Verse six. So he came down at once, and welcomed him gladly. We get an adverb. He's, he's glad about this thing happening. Zacchaeus is glad that Jesus spots him. Jesus is glad that Zacchaeus climbs down from the tree. Everybody is so glad except for the crowd who's hugely frustrated. Verse 7, all of the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, they don't get it. They don't like it because of the, the meal arrangements. Today, we go you know, we out to eat or go over to somebody's house, and everybody, everything's like neat and tidy. You've got like your space, your zone. It's your plate, your napkin, your fork, knife, spoon, your cup. Everything is yours. like this defined area. That's why we don't ever want to sit next to a left-handed person because they infringe on our area. Lefties, you get it. You know I'm right. Don't admit it, but I get it. All right, I'm married to one, and you don't want to do that. It's very private. But, but then, back then, it was much more personal. It was much more intimate. So you'd lie down eating. And you'd lie down like head to sandal. Sandal, by the way, which was outside, where the major mode of transportation is camel and donkey and other living things. You can't like pick up what I'm putting down over here. They're laying head to sandal, uh, laying down together. And when they ate, they don't just have their defined nice little, this is my fork, don't touch my utensil, this is my thing, don't even come elbow into my space. No, they would have these bowls of lamb, of yogurt, of rice, super messy stuff, and they would have no utensils, and they wouldn't have sliced bread. they just rip off a piece of bread and like dip it in there, and then double and triple and quadruple dip it in there, right? Germs everywhere using their bare hands, and it just gets dirty, and they just like wipe it off on stuff, like whatever, and there's just like germs flying all over, it's just like, oh my goodness, you can't even believe how, how intimate the experience was. Because when you ate with somebody, I mean, you were like there with them. When you ate with somebody like that, it made a declaration. It made a, it made a statement on the kind of people that you eat with and and the kind of people you associate with. And it also, if you rejected the invitation, it made a statement about the kind of people you weren't and about the kind of people that you reject the kind of people that you don't want to associate with. But Jesus, he comes around and he's like, I want, I'm I'm. eating at your place. We're doing this thing, Zacchaeus. I'm staying overnight, in fact. And we know who Jesus is. I hope today that if you leave, you leave with a little bigger appreciation or understanding of Zacchaeus. But my honest prayer is that when you leave today, you also leave with a deeper sense of who Jesus is. Because there's a sense in which, if we're honest, all of us are in that boat looking at this meal, Jesus associating with a guy, not on the opposite side of the political spectrum, but but as an extortionist and as a traitor. And Jesus, the Messiah, wants to hang out with him and wants to eat with him and stay at his house and associate with him. And there's so much of us where they're like, Jesus, how can you dine w- w- with a creep like that? God, Jesus, d- didn't you come here to save us from him? And he says, yes, I came here to save you. I came here to save him. Jesus, he, don't you love the broken? And Jesus says, yeah, I love the broken, but I love the breaker too. And we want to say, Jesus, you came here to rescue me from him. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's where you're wrong. I didn't come here to rescue you from him. I came here to rescue you from you and came here to rescue him from him. I'm going to save you from your sins. I'm going to save his, him from his sins. I'll talk to him about that later, but I want to talk to you, Dirk. I want to talk about that change that needs to happen. I want to hear your stuff. Jesus loves the breaker. He loves the broken. He loves the oppressed. But the discomfort, the dramatically uncomfortable thing about this whole thing is that he also loves the oppressor. It's who he is. And it's that, that, that change, it's that love that he shows. It changes everything around. Listen, in the course of the meal, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. He kind of doubles the double a little bit. Right? Like um, the the, the rule was in the Bible, the tithe, the tenth, the 10% of everything that we have, we give back to God as an expression of our gratitude for what he has already done for them, for us. But back then they said, well, we want to be really good. And if you're really good, you would double that and you'd go to 20%. And that's what it meant to be a really good Jewish person in Zacchaeus' day, is that you give back not 10, but 20% of everything you have. But he roughly, he doubles the double, and he goes to 50% and says, half of everything I have, gone to the poor. That's how much I know that God loves me. That's how the change that he's made in my life. And, and then, that he doesn't do just that, but the law also said that if you cheat somebody, if you rip somebody off, then you have to pay back double of whatever you ripped them off for. In Zacchaeus' He doubles the double and says, "No, no, four times, I'm going to pay back four times if I've cheated anybody. And I think the servants are like looking around the room like, everything here is the result of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> you got wealthy from shaking your friends and family down. And I think they're probably the first ones to put two and two together. The math doesn't quite add up because you can't give away everything that you have and pay back four times when everything is the result of cheating. He's essentially standing up and he's making this declaration of poverty. But, but the, the thing of it is though, the way he says it and then what ensues afterwards, he's giving away everything, but it doesn't really feel like he's giving away anything at all. It feels like he, he's giving it all away, but but in a sense he's gaining everything in return. I, I don't under I don't understand this. I admit I don't get it. But church, I've seen it. I, I've, I've seen those conversations. I've seen God move so powerfully in, in, in people's lives, in, in talking with having conversations, uh, modest families, income, and just. A massive financial sacrifice for the work that God is doing and then not just like a financial thing but like putting my work jeans back on and like and like getting to work because it's not just a financial gift but it's also a a time talent and treasure gift it's like everything and I'm like what happened in this person's life that they're just so ready to give up everything it seems like they're not really losing anything at all but in fact gaining even more. I've been in those, in those circles with the prayer requests that come around where one person uh, is, is praying, is a college junior, and she's going, I really believe that God is calling me to a life of worship ministry. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my major from biology pre-med to music. And I'm like, don't tell your parents you learned that here. <laughs> But like watching that story unfold years later and going, I don't understand how somebody could make such a massive life shift and give up all of it, but not really feel like they gave up anything, but in fact, feel like they picked up everything that truly matters. I don't get it, but like, you, I've seen it. And now we all see it here with Zacchaeus. And this change, why? I think it's that name thing we mentioned earlier when Jesus was passing through. I think when Jesus is passing through and he's looking down at the tree and he sees Jesus coming up and Jesus, the rabbi, the spiritual guy, the religious guy, looks up at him and he knows. He knows the kind of looks he's used to getting because he knows the kind of looks that everybody else gives him all the time, especially the religious people. He sees judgment, he sees condemnation, he sees guilt and shame in their eyes all the time. And whenever he hears his name, Zacchaeus, pure, holy, righteous Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he's always used to hearing it with that tone of insult and mockery and disdain and sarcasm. But now for the first time, it's not just a rabbi who passes through, a religious or a spiritual person who passes through. It's God himself walking down the road who looks up and without a hint of sarcasm or insult, in his voice, he calls out, Zacchaeus. 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 And he's not being mocked. He's being loved. He's being loved like he's never been loved before. And it changed him. And he's so willing to give up anything. Anything. In order to pick up everything, to pick up this, from Jesus in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, he's talking about himself, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. For this man too is the son of Abraham. I don't think this guy ever had an experience where one of his fellow countrymen looked at him and said, you're a child of God too. You're a son too included in God's loving and gracious family. You're a son of the king too. You are loved too and it, and it changed him. In love so extravagant. Listen, I think it demands an extravagant response. Extravagant love demands an extravagant response. And that's why he could so easily let go of anything because he gained everything. Psychologists have done this, uh, this research on, uh, on, on love and how it changes people. That when people love people, it changes them. When God loves people, times infinity changes them, transforms them. Uh, Slaughter and Gardner, 2009, if you want to Google it later, did a research study where they, they came up with uh, people uh, and they had a self-inventory of personality characteristics, how uh, artistic, creative, athletic they were. And then they showed them a bunch of dating profiles and says, okay, you know, these are uh, people that uh, you, know, you might be matched with. Um, and they were uh, smart, artistic, creative, athletic. A- and they found that the people afterwards, after kind of falling for somebody on the screen there, um, would start to self-identify as more artistic or creative or athletic, it started to change them. And it kind of like showed about how love, it it has a way of changing people. God's love, though, transforms people. God's love, though, unending, infinite, never-ending kind of love, never before the same. It's extravagant love that demands an extravagant response. Just a story and then a challenge for today, this one about the power of, uh, of somebody caring. It's a story about a, a professor who's talking about his uh, gra- grad student that he had in his class. And he said this grad student was the type who would show up sometimes, most of the time. <laughs> he said he was, uh, he was homely looking, unkept, messy hair, unshowered, ratty clothes, generally presented with a scowl on his face. He's a smart kid, but the professor worried about his, his emotional standing, emotional IQ more than anything. He just didn't seem to fit in socially, and he feared that his ideas, or presence, persona wouldn't be taken seriously because of his recl- reclusive, almost hermit-like lifestyle and disposition. And then something changed. It started with a haircut, cut short and clean. And then some new clothes. He even saw a sweater appear. Last to transition was this perpetual scowl. He started wearing a smile. even heard laughter. He began engaging his colleagues. He was like a whole new person. He had to know what happened. Answer, he met a girl. (laughs) She saw something in him. She never demanded any of those changes. She never even went so far as to suggest them, but he knew what would please her and it was his joy to accommodate. It was like he didn't change to be with her. It was like he was himself for the first time. He writes, I started keeping my room and workspace clean for the first time in my life, improved my hygiene, stopped getting angry at little things, stopped obsessing over my job, stopped compulsive shopping habits, and, and I thought positively about the future for the first time ever. I don't wanna go back to the way I was before. Love changes people, God's love transforms people, and that extravagant love, church It demands a response. Could I ask you to stand up where you are? Just stand up. The response. A theologian and uh, uh, Professor D.L. Moody, once writing about this passage, he said that Zacchaeus was changed in the distance from the limb to the ground, everything changed. If, if he was short and he struggled, it may have taken several minutes to get from the limb to the ground. If he fell, it would have taken not more than a second to get there, but he was changed. His life and heart was transformed in the distance from the limb to the ground because of what God did in his heart. We have a prayer team setting up in the table in the back with a big banner says prayer. During this last song, if you need to see God do a change in your life, if you need to see him chip away at something that doesn't belong or grow and cultivate something that does. Go back to the table in the back and receive the prayer that life changed. Your life, your heart could be radically transformed in the distance from where you're standing right now to the table in the back, because Jesus will meet you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray for transformation. We pray for change. We pray for this. We pray for this love today, to be real in our hearts, real in our lives. God, I pray for for whoever needs it in the room right now to, to hear Jesus, God, even miraculously, even audibly to hear you whisper their name, not without condescension or mockery or insult, but with love and compassion and grace never heard before. Whisper our names, call us forward, call us out of the old way, God, press us, crush what doesn't belong. God, create new wine in our lives. Amen.